Uh, open your bulletin to the back page, and you're going to see the uh, outline for the lesson. It's called A Matter of Hope. I want to begin a new series, and that's our title, because we find ourselves in uncertain times, and we experience a lot of pain in our lives, suffering in this world, a lot of hurt. Some of those are relational. Some of those are physical. Some of those are emotional. Now, in some ways, that's always been true and will always be true. But it just seems, especially as a nation, that there's more turmoil lately. There's more unrest lately. We turn the news on, you get on social media, we're just more polarized, and, and just we see it everywhere. But I also should point out that as Christians, we're at the same place we've always been, right? Whether you're pulling for a particular political party or person, or you're joining the latest hashtag movement, or maybe just looking at your paycheck, wondering if you're going to make it through the week, or pursuing a graduate degree, just trying to get through the work at week, whatever you're doing, none of those things can provide lasting hope. So we have to look somewhere else. Our hope still needs to be in something that's lasting and something that's living. Because what we know is that politicians, preachers, people will fail you. They're human. That happens. Stock markets go up and stock markets go down. Cars break down. Houses deteriorate. Mayors make mistakes. People leave you hanging. It's life. So in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised at all of that. But what we're aware of is we can't put our hope in things that are physical, in things that are material. And I think we've all sensed it, not just me, but that there is a decline in our uh, nation, our world, having a Christian worldview. More and more, we feel like with the laws and the trends, it's been taken away from us. The assumptions we had of yesterday, we can't make today. That you can take somebody at their word. That someone has a respect and high regard for the Bible. We don't live in Mayberry anymore. Maybe we never have, but for sure we don't live in it now. So we need to determine where our priorities are, where our hope is. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. That's going to be our, our text for this study these next couple of weeks. And the opening verse of 1 Peter tells us that Simon Peter wrote the book. This is the apostle. This is the one we know so much about in the Old Testament. One of Jesus' closest friends. And he's writing the letter to Christians who are scattered throughout the world. These are people who have found themselves marginalized. They've been discriminated. They've been run out of their own country. Frankly, they're running for their lives. And Peter reminds them in this letter to put their hope in Jesus Christ. Now he writes the letter to those who are on the run. A little bit of the background kind of helps us to understand, but he writes that they are in five different provinces. We might look at the map in that day and just in our mind think of modern day Turkey, but it really doesn't matter. What he's saying is like, hey, you're not at home. You had to run for your life. And so he's sharing this message of hope to them. The timing of the book is believed to be written in the mid-A.D. 60s. And if you remember your history, in A.D. 64, there was a major event in Rome. It was the fire, the fire that devastated the city. But what was peculiar about that fire is that Nero's estate was unscathed and his best friend. Well, as everybody was noticing that, why was everybody burned up? Why was so much damage? And yet Nero escaped and Nero's best friend. So a lot of chitter-chatter going around. 
What happened? Who caused this? Nero had to do something. Now, we don't know if it was all in Nero's mind or if he had a marketing team to put out the message. But they had a message. And they decided to hang it all on the Christians. Three different things that they shed spread throughout the Roman Empire and the message took. The first thing they said about this new religion of Christianity was that they were atheists. Now, how would they be called atheists? Because the Romans believed in many gods. And these Christians believed in one God. And so they called them atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods that the Romans believed in. Well, the second thing they did is they claimed that the Christians were cannibals. Why were they called these people cannibals? Well, if you went to one of their gatherings and you observed they were drinking blood. And they were eating the body of Jesus. Another thing they did is they accused the Christians of having incestuous relationships. Now, where did that come from? Well, again, if you spent any time with these people, when they were together, you'd hear them say, I love you, brother, and I love you, sister. It was a master message. Just a little bit of truth and a whole lot of error, and the Christian became easy to blame. Weird people, fanatic people. Who are this strange group, these extremists? As you hear that, you think how successful they were. But Nero didn't stop there. It wasn't just about messaging. He knew that now that they were the blame, something had to be done. And so Nero did that. And again, you think about the microphones, the sound bites, those falsely labeling Christians even today as judgmental, homophobic, fanatical, racial, out of touch. Nero chose to be brutal to Christians. The second century historian Tacitus wrote this about Nero. He said, Nero was burning Christians alive as torches to light his gardens at night, feeding them to wild animals for public entertainment. In all, Nero murdered thousands of Christians in Rome. So it's during this time of persecution that Peter writes this letter, the one that we have through inspiration, telling them to hang on, telling them they've got to have hope. And through inspiration, we have the same words. How to deal with suffering, how to deal with persecution when things in this life are not going well. So in this series of lessons, I want us to learn about hope, even in difficult times. Two sections of scripture I want us to study this morning, both from first, uh, the first chapter. And the first section asks this question, it's on the screen. What is the source of hope? What is the source of hope? Well, look in your Bibles at 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. He writes here to these Christians who were scattered. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. These believers in Jesus, he's reminding them, we've been born into this family, Christ's family, and there are some implications that go with that, some truths, some promises that we need to hang on to. And what he mentions here right off the bat, we have an inheritance. We are heirs to this God of the universe. He has this for us. And Peter is very clear as he writes this that this inheritance is safe, it's secure. In describing that, his words, he uses a military term, meaning it's guarded. 
That's what it's safe and secure, guarded, kept for you. God's keeping this inheritance. Your name is on it. Nobody can snatch that. It will never, and he uses these words, perish, spoil, or fade. We understand those words. Think about perish. I thought about how many of the houses that we live in now were constructed 100 years ago. Not many. That's the exception. And how many of the houses we live in now are going to still be standing 100 years from now? So we understand houses deteriorating, things perishing. And I thought about spoiling. We know that food only lasts for so long. I was, I was thinking about this. I thought, you know, people are basically in two different categories, two different groups of people. You know, when you buy something that's packaged, it's got that freshness date on it. There's one group of people that that freshness date is a rule. You read the date, if you're past the rule, in the garbage it goes. No questions. Some of you are checking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And others of you, the freshness date is a suggestion. You know, it's like, it'd be ideal. You know, it's a good thought. And so you open it up, give it the sniff test, maybe ate a little bite of it. It's okay. Oh, some of you are grimacing. Yeah. I'm just, just curious. How many of you, it's the rule. You throw it out, no questions asked. Raise your hand. Be proud. Yeah. How many of you, it's just a suggestion? Yeah, you like to live on the edge. That's right. Um, and usually you're in the same house, too, right? Kind of goes that way. I was telling somebody in Bible class, our daughter Emily, one time she was off at college, and then she came back, and she was in the pantry, and she found something. She goes, Mom, this expired a year and a half ago. And she was going, hmm. You know, it's like, it, it happens. And you understand, we understand spoil. We understand fade. How many of us have little art projects that our little children gave us? Not that many years ago, brightly colored, but so quickly, especially construction paper. You notice how fast construction paper fades? Or maybe a special letter that was written decades ago on white paper, at least originally. It was white paper. Newsprint's the worst. You know, newspaper, it just turns yellow. We understand these words, perish, spoiled, fade. But he uses the word here. Peter points out, God's promised you something that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. Now, if you read the passage quickly, and especially emphasize the inheritance we're going to receive in heaven, if we're not careful, what we will say and what we will think is, I have a hope in heaven, and my hope is heaven. And to some degree, that's true, because that's our ultimate reward. But sometimes we kind of look so forward to heaven, it's hard to kind of keep that in perspective, especially as Peter's writing to this crowd, and sometimes through inspiration, we're there too. We're in the middle of pain. We're in the middle of suffering. And it's all good then. I need hope now. I need something to hang on to now. So heaven is our ultimate hope, but that's not really what he's talking about here. He's saying our hope isn't found in a place, in a destination. Our hope, his words, living hope. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He made our salvation possible because of his death, because of his resurrection. And we all know how easy it is to start looking for hope in all the wrong places. That's why you have to stay in the word. That's why we worship weekly. We don't want to miss that's why you study the Bible together to hold each other accountable. Because we know it's possible to lose our way. 
We know it's possible to lose sight of who we're living for, of where our hope is. We, just like the world, experience pain and trouble and struggles. And sometimes our hope gets waylaid. We lose our way. But for a Christian, our hope is alive. Again, Peter's word, living hope. Look at verse 6 in the text. Kind of a shift that takes place that Peter makes this point. He's talking now about our attitude, our disposition, the way we think because of this living hope. Look in verse 6. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So when Peter says here that we should rejoice in this, you realize that he's referring to what he mentioned in the previous verses. He's referring in Jesus Christ because of his resurrection, because Jesus lives. That's how we have this hope, this eternal inheritance. So he's comparing this temporary to our eternal reward. And there really is no comparison. But living hope isn't just tolerating the temporary, the difficulty, the persecution, the pain, just so that we can get to heaven. It's about how we live. How we think. How we deal with this adversity that we're going through. And the only way you can do that is when you're clinging to Jesus. When he's your living hope. See, hope isn't just about the future. It's about the present. When things at work are overwhelming to you. When a friend betrays you. When your family's at a crossroads. Maybe just a problem. You're not sure if you're going to make it. Maybe for you it's very personal. It's an unanswered prayer, an empty womb. As painful as those times are, those are also opportunities to display your perspective. What do you know? What do you believe? What are you hanging on to? In verse 6 it says, in this you greatly rejoice because you have a living hope. Now, you're not celebrating the suffering. You're celebrating what in this refers to. In this living hope, in Jesus Christ, that's the Christian's hope. A living hope. You cannot see it, he says. So we can see a dying hope. We know that. They're all around us, a dying hope. You put so much hope, expectation, and those expectations aren't met. Those hopes are dashed. It happens all the time. Ultimately, it doesn't satisfy. And it's not just the world. We do it too. We can be just as guilty. What starts as new gets old. What starts as exciting and exhilarating becomes ho-hum. It's not fulfilling anymore. We need a living hope. And Peter reminds us that living hope is Jesus. Well, here's the second half of the section and the second question. How then is our faith strengthened? How is our faith strengthened? Well, one of the ways it happens, and Peter's very blunt about this. I mean, chapter 1, he gets into it through difficulty, through trials, through persecution. Even though for a little while, compared to eternity, he's saying here, I might experience these trials. Peter reminds us to keep our suffering in perspective against the backdrop of our relationship with Jesus, what really matters, and our ultimate hope where we're growing. So in God's paradoxical way, he's teaching us our faith can grow through suffering, through trouble, 
through these trials. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. Now look in your Bibles in the next verse, verses 7 through 9. Still talking about these trials. He said, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the end goal. The end result of faith, this living hope that we have in Jesus Christ, is the soul is saved. Nothing is more important than that. Everything else comes second to that. And note where it says here, so that, in verse 7. So that. This indicates the purpose the purpose of what Peter is talking about. These have come. These have come. These trials have come. This suffering has come. These rough times, these difficult circumstances, these have come into your life to provide opportunities for God to grow your faith, to strengthen your faith. Some of you have been in so much difficulty pain or a trial that you doubt you question is there a God does he really care why is this happening to me and you're thinking if not saying I don't think I can praise God I'm not feeling it I don't want to go to worship you say I I can't say God is good not right now I'm not there I mean you don't know what to think Your pain is so strong, you you don't don't know how to say it. Life is not always easy. Life is not always enjoyable. Maybe you feel like your marriage is on its last leg. Maybe it's your health. You've been sick so long, you've been in pain so long, you forgot what normal feels like. But your desire is for God to miraculously intervene because he's your only hope. For others, you struggle at work. It's a job. It is a job. And it's so hard to be a light in a dark world where you seem like you never get ahead and nobody notices. You feel all alone. If you have this living hope, Jesus produces joy. Remember the setting. The the audience who first read Peter's words here. These Christians who had to run for their lives, they left their homes, their home country, their employment, everything. They were doing fine until this difficulty, and now they're just trying to stay alive. But if you have this living hope, he writes, it will produce joy even in those kinds of circumstances and even in strengthen your faith, he says here. That's where he's saying your faith is going to be stronger. Your relationship with the Lord will be stronger. You see, you can't claim he's your living hope If he's not what you're clinging to. Because that's the kind of image we think of when we think of hope. That's what you're hanging on to. That's what you're clinging to. So you can't have a testimony. That word testimony has as its root word test. You have to go through the test before you have something to say. Otherwise, it's always sunny and everything's pleasant. Everything's great. We don't want to hear those testimonies. We want to hear, how did you make it? How did you survive? And the trials are the proof of your faith. You grow in your faith. Your faith is strengthened. 
There's a greater good that comes out of that suffering. Now, God isn't some evil, mad scientist, maniacal kind of mind that, that takes joy in, in watching his people or even causing his people to go through hard times. Don't think about that. Don't, don't see God that way. The Bible tells us that God is the giver of every perfect and good gift. That's who God is. The Bible tells us it's Satan. He's the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. And rest assured that any evil, any suffering that God allows, he can use that for good. For your good. That's who he is. That's what he does. David Jeremiah said it like this. It seems to be the universal testimony of those who suffer that it is a very clarifying experience for them. Pain is a type of preparation like no other, allowing the unimportant to fall away and the critical to rise to the top. And ultimately, that's what God wants for us. For the unimportant to fall away and the critical to rise to the top. Let go of everything else. You shall have no other gods before me. God's always been that way. Always asked of us as people. He wants to rise to the top. He wants us to be the one that he's clinging to. But it is your choice. He's not going to force it on you. He's not going to make you believe. He's not going to make you make the right decisions. It is your choice. Jesus said these comforting words in John 16, 33. I told you these things. So that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Some translations say, take courage. Take heart. Take courage. See the big picture. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. What are you hanging on to? That's what he's saying here. When things are falling apart, when things don't make sense. When you seem to be making no progress in this mess called life. He's saying, hang on. Because that no matter what life may throw at us, our faith is a living faith in the one, his words, who overcame the world. So take heart. Take courage. He is a tried and tested hope. So Peter is telling these early Christians, you have to decide. You have to decide where your hope is. There may be ridicule. You may feel alone. You may be alone. But you need to finish the race. You need to finish the race. The Olympics are just days away. Not the only one that likes to watch the Olympics. Have you noticed how many of us who may not know anything about a particular sport, and sometimes we're amazed that, oh, that's a sport now, suddenly we become the armchair quarterbacks. And we know all the lingo of these things that we wouldn't even know how to begin to do ourselves. We've never skied before, but now we know everything about it. We know when the ice skaters get their sow cow, their triple axle. These words we never ever used before, but now we know. Or the skateboarders, the half pipe, the roast beef, the alley-oop. All these words, now we know what they're talking about. And we know when they've nailed them. But you don't have to be a fan of the Olympics to know how important it is to finish. To see whether it's an individual routine, but they've got to hang on to the end, even if they fell down. 
Or if it's a race, and sometimes you'll see them just, just hurl their bodies across the finish line because they know it's a matter of finishing the race. Let me tell you what you already know. The Christian life is a race. And it's about finishing the race. It's about finishing the race. I mentioned to you last week, and it came to mind again as I was studying through 1 Peter, that I have this tendency, and I think you do too, because I think I've learned it from you. Can I blame you for it? No, I won't do that. But I have this tendency when I pray, I pray for easy I want health, I want money to take care of things, I want things to go well. And if I am in a jam, I want escape, I want to rescue. That seems to be my focus. Let me remind you, as I remind myself, what Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi while Paul was sitting in a prison cell. Look on the screen, Philippians 1, 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul is sitting in a prison cell. Because of his faith, he didn't break the law. Because of his faith, he's sitting in a prison cell. He says it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also you get to suffer. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news to hear? See, for the first century Christians, that was good news. And it amazes me that they responded in that way. The class I teach in the Family Center, we're studying through the book of Acts, and especially how the Holy Spirit worked among God's people, and how they were preaching the name of Jesus. And when they were incarcerated, when they were flogged, when they were beaten... Luke tells us how they responded. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. What's the difference between a 21st century Christian and a 1st century Christian? This may be it. That when difficulties come, instead of saying, God, where are you? They say, God, I see you. And to rejoice. What if... What if instead of doing all we can to try to avoid all the troubles, what if rather than fearing it, instead, when we find ourselves in the middle of that suffering, in the middle of that difficulty, see, what an amazing opportunity for me to grow in my faith and to show that to others who don't believe. I put this on the screen. You've heard it before. Suffering in any form will either draw you to God or drive you from God. Suffering in any form will either draw you to God or drive you from God. You've heard the saying, the same hot water that makes the potato soft makes the egg hard. As I was studying through this passage this week and thinking about this moment, what I would stand before you and look into your faces... I would not call names, but I know so many of you have suffered. So many of you have suffered. And you chose to draw near to God and demonstrate your faith. And I want you to know 
that we saw it. We see it. When that difficulty hit you in the head and you praised God and kept your faith, that amazes us and it inspires us and we see your faith even stronger. Because we know by watching you, your hope is not in this world. You have a living hope. I read the following note from a young woman. She wrote this, at the start of this year, I made a promise to God that each day, for 365 days, whatever he asked me to do, I would take a step of faith and I would be obedient. It's been so exciting to serve him. I want to be a bondservant of Christ. I feel so lonely out here knowing that people around me just don't get it. And they don't really understand where I'm coming from. But I'm grateful for the privilege, and it motivates me to rise to my calling in Christ and to know that I'm not alone in this. When I read her words, I thought, that sounds like Paul, doesn't it? it sounds just like him. Paul was sitting in a prison cell. She writes, let me tell you the background that she was writing from. 30-something-year-old mom Five children, her husband, after 18 months of fighting cancer, died. She wrote those words. She goes on to write, I never would have chosen this path on my own, but I'm so grateful for my suffering. I'm so grateful for my suffering. It has stripped me of so much and left me just a simple girl in pursuit of God, His Word, and His people. My suffering motivates me to rise to my calling in Christ and to know that I am not alone in this. Now, that's not the typical response you would think of most 30-something widows with five small children, unless they have a living hope in a resurrected Jesus. And then she can sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Look at the screen at verses 8 and 9 again. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 8 and 9. We read this passage a moment ago. I want to end in a different way because I want us to read this together aloud. And I want, as you do this, this to be... Your testimony, your statement of faith, that this describes you. So, if you don't mind, stand and let's read this together as we close. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Let's read together. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now... You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You don't see him now. And yet you believe. That's what gives us the salvation of our souls. Where's your hope? Our song of encouragement, of invitation, is for you 
to declare Jesus is your living hope. If you're ready to respond to the gospel, let him make you a new creation. As you're baptized, as you confess your faith, we want to encourage you and support you in that. Or if we can pray for you, just to rededicate your life, to refocus on Jesus, your living hope. Once you come as we sing this song to encourage.